art thou? Yes, we'll put that in, in King James English for you. How art thou this morning? Hey, good to see everybody. Glad to see some of you. Remember, we have church more than twice a year, just Easter and Christmas. We had our Easter crowd last week. Glad to see some of you back. How's it been this week? Wonderful. I like that answer. That's a good answer. I like the um, the first bumper music there, slide, whatever you want to call it, that we had before the sermon this morning. Talking about Christ being risen, about the hope we have, all the wonderful things that go with that that we celebrated last Sunday. Have you ever thought about what happened next, though? Have you ever thought about that? You know, you know that's not the end of the story. You know, Jesus died on the cross, rose again, and now what? what? What does all that mean? I mean, obviously, the disciples and those other followers of Christ have been through a crazy time. They've gone and they've seen Jesus. They've, they've walked with him. They've walked with God on earth, literally. Fellowshiped with him, ate meals with him, talked with him, prayed with him. And then it's come to this point that he predicted, he told them was going to happen, and he is taken and crucified. That had to be the lowest point in those people's lives. Can you imagine how hard that was to see your friend, your mentor, your very own God crucified and not know what's going to happen? But he had promised he would rise again in three days. And just as Jesus promised, on the third day, he arose and began to walk on the earth again. Wow. Can you think of that? Think of, that's no trick. God has come, he has defeated death on the cross and has risen again to show his power and to provide a sacrifice for us so that we do not have to pay the penalty of our own sins. Can you imagine what an exciting time that was in the world to have seen that happen? And the scripture tells us this, to get a glimpse into what was happening. Look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says, In this first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus has come, and I like this. You know, we, we've talked a little bit in the past, in, this, in our last series, about the proofs of God and things of who he is in the proofs of text and things and how reliable the scripture is. But look at this. In, in the scripture, it tells us that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So not only did he appear, he proved that he was here. Here I am. This is me. This is, I am Jesus, the one that was crucified. And he began to speak with his disciples and those other followers. And he was here for 40 days. And then he ascended. He rose back to heaven. You're talking about an emotional roller coaster. You just got your best friend, your mentor, your very own savior walking the earth. You just got him back, and in 40 days, he's gone again. Can you imagine that? That's the reason he said, I'm sending someone else, a comforter, someone that will help you. And he describes that third person of the Trinity as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come into your lives. And those men and women there experience that. God came to dwell within them. The Holy Spirit came as their helper, as the one to embolden them to preach the gospel, to go and share what they had just experienced. 
Can you imagine how hopeless it would have been without that? To have thought, well, Jesus defeated the great, but now he left us, and I don't understand why. And that's the reason he sent the Holy Spirit to us, so, as, so we will be able to understand what was happening in our lives and what was happening in, in Jesus' life and what this timeline looked like. So this is the setting for our story today. All these events have happened. Jesus has walked on the earth for 40 days. He's shown these many proofs of who he is to his disciples. He's talked to them. He's explained what's going on. Now he's risen back to heaven. The Holy Spirit has came upon these people. And that's where we pick up our story today. Men rose up to preach the good news about Jesus, but it, always, it wasn't always well received. In fact, it could bring about their death. You see, not everybody was happy about this Jesus story. We can't imagine that today with the freedoms we have. But not everyone believed in this story. As a matter of fact, there were a lot of people in that day that didn't accept Jesus as Christ. They didn't, the Jews especially had rejected him. And so this caused a lot of turmoil in the early church. And when these men began to preach this to the various audiences, we had some, some strong reaction to it. Look now at Acts chapter 7, uh, starting with verse 54. Stephen is preaching. It says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He passed on. The, one of the first recorded incidents of martyrdom in the, in the scriptures for standing up for what, what Jesus stood for and what, what he believed in. Stephen was preaching to a Jewish audience. And he basically said, look, he explained the facts of why Jesus died. And he pretty much laid the burden of that at their feet and said, he died for our sins. We caused this. And it enraged them. They didn't want to hear that message. They didn't want to hear it so badly that they stoned him to death. But this is where one of the primary characters we're going to talk about today comes into this. Is a man named Saul. It says there was a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, a young man named Saul. Who is this Saul character? Saul was an educated Jew. Uh, he has been described as a Jew among Jews. He was so educated in, the, in, the, in their word and in their scriptures. And he was, I guess, a, an expert would be the best way we could describe it today in, the, in, in Judea and what, what they were teaching. And so he was this expert in Jewish law and everything. He could tell you everything that you were supposed to do under the law in, Jew, in um, Judea. And, and it's like, he didn't like what was being preached. This was going against what he believed as well. So he didn't step in to stop any of this. You would think, we talk about tolerance and things a lot these days. He didn't step in to say, no, God says thou shalt not kill. You know, that's even in the Old Testament scriptures. He didn't step in and say that. Matter of fact, he held their garments to allow them to freely stone Stephen to death. So this is the primary character we see in the New Testament. Is this guy called Saul. And he's a despicable character, really. He's horrible. He's persecuting the church. He is going around trying to find these people that are preaching about Jesus. And he's stoning them to death. 
He's not physically doing it, but he's allowing it to happen. Let me put it that way. He is, he is part of the plot to do that. Uh, our next set of verses in Acts chapter 8 says, And Saul approved of his execution, talking about Stephen, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So not everyone got stoned. Many of them were rounded up, put in prison for this. Now, what's going on here? Let's look at the political climate of the day. Something that always fascinates me are politics and history. To get a richer picture of what's going on in Scripture, in this time in history, Rome ruled these areas. This wasn't ruled by the Jews in Judea or whatever. It was under separate areas of Roman rule. And this is where it becomes very interesting in this story because in Rome, they didn't actually agree about who Jesus was either. There was some controversy. The, the Romans, many of you, if you've studied history, now they had a multitude of gods that they worshipped. And some of the Roman Empire wanted to keep it that way. Here are our gods. These are the ones we've set up. This is who we worship. Others wanted it to be, here are the gods we worship. Let's add this Jesus guy to it. He seems pretty good. He'll keep those people happy. Let's add him to our gods. And we had yet another sect that said, no, Jesus is the way. Jesus is God. And we need to turn away from these other gods that we realize weren't truly gods and follow the true God. So you have this set up in the Roman Empire, and there's, there's disagreement about this. So... Even within Roman citizens, there's persecution. I'm going to tell you a story about the martyrs of Sebastia, a story I've never read. And while studying for this, ran across this story. There were 40 Roman legionnaires. When we say Roman legionnaires, how many guys go, Urgh! these are tough guys, right? These are not the guys to be messed with. These are men among men. And there were 40 of them who declared that they were followers of Jesus Christ. Well, the, per, the, the particular sect of Rome that ruled over them said, no, that's okay, but you need to burn incense to the other gods because you need to show respect to them. They said, no, we will not do this. We are not going to turn our backs on the one true God, no matter what you say. We will not worship your gods by burning incense to them. So these 40 legionnaires are in prison. Notice a lot of people are being imprisoned in this time. They're chained together, all 40 of them in a prison cell. So they await their sentence. Well, they, they drafted this. And I tell you, Rome was a devious, evil ruling party. That's who invented the idea of crucifixion that we talked about last week. They had some very cruel punishment for those that didn't agree with them. So they decided what they would do with these men was they would strip them of their clothing, march them out onto a frozen lake, and make them stand there till they denied Jesus. Now, that's bad enough. Basically, to make them die of hypothermia or exposure or whatever. But not only did they do that, hey, if you would, you know, come over here and deny Jesus, we've got a nice warm fire and there's a warm bath over here for you as well. So they not only tempted them to deny their faith, they also came, came in and enticed them to deny it with physical things that, that they knew they needed. And so these 40 men are stranded out there on the middle of this frozen lake, freezing to death. One man cannot take it anymore. He says, I'll deny, I'll deny Jesus. He goes 
jumps in the warm bath, the shock of the temperature change caused him to lose his life. He died in that warm bath after denying Christ. Well, one of the other Roman soldiers there who was not part of the original 40 saw this, and it so inspired him, he went and joined the other men on the lake. He said, if that man, he said, these men have that much faith, I want to have that faith in my life. And he ran out there and joined them. After the, after the time was, was done, that they were exposed to the cold and everything, only one man survived that, and he died in his mother's arms of exposure. So all 40 of the original, plus the one that denied Christ, all of them lost their lives. But this is the atmosphere in Rome at the time. This is what's going on. The church, these people that believe Jesus, they are being horribly persecuted. They're being hunted down, put in prison, and then executed, or, or these horrible punishments. All this is what's going on in this early church, and we're seeing that. And the thing is, with these three, three areas of Roman rule, the other thing that they're doing is kind of allowing the Jews to rule themselves. They've outlawed some of the things that we're going to be talking about here, like the stoning of Stephen, but they just kind of turn a blind eye to it and say, well, if that keeps those people happy, let them stone those people. Let them kind of rule themselves. It's worked well for us in the past. Let's don't do this. And you remember all the things, I don't know, we didn't go into a lot last week in our teaching, but, but some of you in the Easter season may have watched The Passion or some of those other things or read through the story of Jesus in your personal devotional time and things and saw the Roman rulers and how he interacted with them. We see that even after Jesus' death, if you read historical accounts and things, these, Roman, these rulers, Caiaphas especially, there was disagreement about how they handled that. As a matter of fact, the Romans came back against those, those particular ones that were in, involved in the, in the trial of Jesus and said, hey, 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 don't be doing this anymore. This is not right. You shouldn't have done that. And in other words, they wanted to stay out of trouble. The Romans wanted the Jews on their good side, and they wanted the Romans on their good side, and they were the consummate politicians. They were playing both sides against each other, trying to empower themselves to keep in power. So this is the setting we have. All of this, you know, has happened. And the church is in the middle of this, trying to grow. So we have this story of Saul. He's just been there. He's been persecuting the church. He's been imprisoning them house after house, dragging them into prison. We've got the Roman culture and what they're trying to do with the politics of the day and who they're trying to favor. But listen to this. It says, during the first decades of the church, Christians in Palestine generally enjoyed the protection of Roman justice, which, as we know from the trial of our Lord, which I was referring to, reserved to itself capital sentences and attempted not to interfere with the religions of the various peoples in the empire. The stoning of St. Stephen, for example, was one of the occasional acts of brutal power, of brutal popular justice, which were unauthorized, but the Roman authorities could not always prevent. That's when you see that textual reference. This is from book um, Christians in the Roman Empire. So we've got now to deal with this situation because Saul is still out here. The guy that they're talking about there, that kind of those unauthorized executions, Saul was standing there. He was part of that. So let's look at this. Acts chapter 9, going back to our central character of the day, Saul. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way that was followers of Jesus... Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, 
Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Wow. That makes you wonder about persecuting the church, doesn't it? You're walking along on the road and suddenly there's a flash of light, a voice that says, I'm Jesus who you're persecuted, and now you're blinded. Some of us, I don't think, would react even then to change what we do. But this is the story of Saul. This is a story of a very central character in the Bible. And so he has had this experience. We call it a Damascus Road experience. He has actually talked to Jesus himself. After Jesus has risen to heaven, Jesus has come through this vision, through this light, and has spoken to Saul and told him, why are you persecuting me? And he's given him instructions of where to go there as he's on his road on the way to Damascus. Continue on in the story. Acts chapter 9, 19. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Wow, what a change in someone's life. Saul has gone from the from persecuting those in the church, those who were followers of Jesus, the way as it was called. Those people, he has gone, instead of persecuting them, he is now a spokesperson for them. Would you trust that? Would you be like the people in Damascus? Would you say, oh, wait, 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 wait. Weren't you the guy that when Stephen got stoned to death that you held the garments the other day and now all of a sudden you're on the opposite side? I don't think so. I mean, would you trust that? Would you trust if we apprehended one of the, the radical Islamic bombers that we read so much about, one responsible for Paris or or maybe someone that was involved in the plot here in Chattanooga, and they came before us today and said, I renounce my religion and I follow Jesus. Would you trust them? Could you trust them? Would you trust them? Should you trust them? You know, think about that. This is what the, the Jews were faced with here. So now we've got a really strange set of circumstances going on. We have the, the Jews there in Damascus that... You know, they already don't believe this Jesus message. Now they're really confused because we've got this guy that was on our side is now on Jesus' side. And he's preaching about him in our synagogue. What should we do about this? Well, that's easy. Let's kill him. <laughs> that's their, their automatic answer. That's the solution to everything. Let's just kill him. And so when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Acts chapter 9 again. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through the opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. The disciples protected Saul in this instance. When the Jews came to kill him, they lowered him over the city's walls and helped him to escape the certain wrath that was coming to him. He was fixing to get 
what the, he had condoned Stephen got. He was fixing to be stoned to death by these people that were against Jesus in the way, these Jews. Now, now think about this, how quickly your own people will turn on you. What did I say Saul was a minute ago? A Jew among Jews. He was one of the most highly revered Jews in the world. And yet they saw this change they didn't like in him. And they thought it threatened their very existence. And so they decided to kill him. Wow. I mean, it's just, it's amazing to see what, what is going on in this and how persecuted they were. Continue on. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So he has moved to Jerusalem now and is preaching and he has the support of Barnabas. Now, again, the next set of verses, Acts nine twenty six. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church... Throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So Saul has come. He started preaching the church. Things in the Roman Empire have cooled off. They've started to allow this. Constantine, one of the Roman rulers, has endorsed Christianity. And through all the circumstances of events that God has orchestrated, the church gains peace to a great extent and begins to grow. Now, we know that all but one of Jesus' disciples was killed for their beliefs. So we know it wasn't complete peace during that time. But we also see during that time of persecution that the church began to grow and multiply. That's what it says here in Acts chapter 9, is that it multiplied. So this is what was happening in, in the same region of the world that we talk about every day in the news today in Syria, Damascus. Do you recognize some of those names from the news lately? This is where Paul was preaching at. We know him as Paul. This is the man we've been talking about this morning that was called Saul before his conversion. I'd change my name too, wouldn't you? <laughs> you know, if you're going to go, now let's, let's just imagine this. Again, let's, let's take, we've got this man that, that's been a, a, a radical Muslim. He's perverted their faith. He's killing those that oppose them. He's come and his name is one of those that's, you know, five miles long and I can't, I can't even pronounce. And he comes to Journey today and we introduce him and this is Bubba Joe and he's going to be preaching. I'd change my name to Bubba Joe too if I had that reputation, wouldn't you? But this is Paul. This man went on to write a great portion of the New Testament of Scripture. He write, he, through God's power, through that Holy Spirit in him, he wrote scripture that inspires us to this day, that tells us how to live. He wrote letters to the churches and told them how to conduct their business. All these things that he did. But still, the world is still embroiled in conflict and war over the message of Jesus. Would you all agree with that? We talked a little bit about the persecuted church last week. We, we don't really in America have a good idea of what that means. We don't really realize sometimes what's going on in the world and how, how hot these things are, how hot these issues are of what's going on. I think Mark mentioned a little bit of this last week, but listen to this. A suicide bomber kills more than 70 as the Taliban targets Christians celebrating Easter at a Pakistan park. A suicide bomber targeted Christians celebrating Easter Sunday in a popular family park in Pakistan's second largest city, killing at least 70 people 
and wounding hundreds more. Wow. So here are, is the Taliban. Now we've been focused on who? ISIS, ISIL, those people. And now we've got, remember those people, the Taliban? We'd kind of forgotten about them in Afghanistan and all around that area. We've forgotten about them. But here in Pakistan, they have targeted Christians who were celebrating Easter. They had gone, had their worship service. And as part of the celebration of the day, they had gone to a family park as Christians. And a suicide bomber went. Not only did he go to the park. Again, the thing you have to realize is a little different in culture in the Middle East and in Pakistan and stuff. They have areas of the park that were for men and some were for women and children. You know where he went? The suicide bomber is close to the women's and children's areas he could get and detonated that bomb, killing himself and killing those women and children simply because of his hatred of Jesus Christ and what he represents. We don't hear a lot about that. You know, we, we hear about persecution, but we, we don't bring it down to that level. Guys, it would be like us getting together here and we've had our great Easter service, and we've gone out to Lake Winnipesoka, and we're having a family meal out there, and somebody comes and kills us because they didn't like it that we worship Jesus this morning. That's what persecution's like, and that's what the early church dealt with, this, was this persecution. And now we're seeing it in our, in our own day and time in different areas of the country. You know, so what would you do in that situation? What would you do? How would you combat that? Well, what we've done in the past as a, as a country is we have gone and we have tried to correct those things as best we knew how by going to occupying those lands and stuff. But I want you to listen to this. Political statements and policies can have unintended consequences. Listen to this quote. Relations between Christians and Muslims in Pakistan grew worse after 2001 with the American response to the 9-11 attacks, which many Pakistani Muslims saw as foreign plot to defame their faith. This is from Pamela Constable, the Washington Post. What caused that? Before 9-11 and what happened in our country, Pakistani Muslims were living pretty much at peace with the Christians there. But because of our reaction, whether right or wrong, not here to talk politics this morning, but because of policies and the things we did, it hardened the hearts of those Muslims even more in Pakistan to the point that now they hate all Christians. Now, I don't know where, where Islamic people get their view of the United States. They get that from TV or whatever. If they think we're this great Christian nation where everybody behaves like Christ wants them to, boy, aren't they wrong. <laughs> I mean, you know, look at, look at the things our nation does. Look at what we as individuals do, how much we mess up and stuff. Honestly, we're, not, we're more of a threat to ourselves than they are to us. Because we're not doing the things that Jesus teaches. But somehow, all of this wraps together in this world policy of things. And it hurts the church. It hurts. It causes these people to be even more persecuted than they would have been. And it led to this bombing on on last Easter Sunday. Christian martyrdom has continued to grow so much that it is estimated that more Christians have been killed for their faith in the 20th and 21st centuries than the previous 19 centuries Combined. Let's just pause a minute there. Century, a hundred year term. In the past 200 years, there's been more than the other 19 100 years combined that Christians have lost their lives for their faith. It is estimated that tens of thousands of Christians were killed as a direct result of their faith. 
So where does that leave us? Where does it leave us as Journey Church? Where does that leave us as individuals on a Sunday morning here in Chattanooga, Tennessee? What should we be doing about all this? What do you think? You know, pray. I don't hear that response often. You guys are pretty, pretty on top of things. Did y'all read my next slide? You didn't get the next slide up there, but mistake, did you? Listen to this. Christians should be praying for the salvation of their enemies instead of praying for their destruction. When you said praying, which did you mean? Did you, were you praying for us not to be persecuted, or were you praying for our enemies to, to receive salvation and change their way? Which were you praying a minute ago when you said that? Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes we get so wrapped up in, in what's going on here, we are trying to so much present, prevent ourselves from being persecuted, we fail to do what the Bible tells us to about our enemies. Let's go back and think about this Saul character that turned into Paul. What do you think the prayers were of the early church? Have you ever thought about that? I was thinking about that as I prepared this message. We always pray for the preservation of the church, and we, we pray that it won't be persecuted. You ever thought that maybe, just maybe, that somewhere there was a person of the way, as they called it, a follower of Jesus, and they saw this horrible man, Saul, and said, look at the influence this horrible man has. Lord, I pray that he'll, he'll receive salvation and trust you one day. Have you ever thought about that, that somebody might have been praying for Saul? Scripture doesn't tell us. It just tells us that Jesus intervened in a supernatural way into the, into the workings of the, of the world of that day when he appeared to Saul on the Damascus Road. But what if? Do you think that's a stretch to say that somebody was praying for their enemy? That somebody was praying? I pray that Saul will turn his life over to Jesus and be as great a force for Jesus as he's been against him. That's a bold prayer, isn't it? Which is easier to pray? To pray for your enemy like that? Or is it easier just to pray for their destruction? Which do you think is more easily accomplished? This is where it really steps on our toes. Which is more easy, easily established? You will hear throughout the political cycle and everything else, how do we deal with radical Islam? One of the most popular things is we'll destroy them. We'll find what country's supporting them. We'll go and destroy that. That is definitely a way for this to happen. That is a way to end radical Islam. If you could somehow find which country was supporting them and eradicate everything in that country by bombing or whatever, that's one way to do it. Which way is easier? Isn't it easier to take physical action and try and take things into our own hands sometimes than it is to say, God, I trust you and I pray that this happens? And I'm not saying that our prayers can always be without action, and I'm not saying that, that always we can avoid every war and every circumstance, but that shouldn't be our first reaction as Christians is to go kill our enemies. And do you know why? Because that's against, that's against the rules. This is what it says in the Bible. Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. That's worth reading twice. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was a popular saying. That's what I'm saying here this morning. It's so much easier to hate those that hate us. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Luke chapter 6, 
verses 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. Nowhere in there. Do you see where in there it says, and if they don't listen, destroy them to the uttermost ends of the earth? I don't see that. I'm looking, I don't see the part that I would like to do. That's, I mean, isn't that your natural reaction as a human being? Is if somebody is going to, and especially if, how many of you are moms in here? Well, if they threaten your babies, what are you going to do? Oh, you talk about utter destruction. <laughs> you mess with my child? Oh, my goodness. What would be the first, what is your first reaction if somebody bullied your child in school? I will end you. Yes, that is the answer. I will end you. That is the most popular answer among our congregation. And I can, I know some of you very well and I can see it happening. Some poor little eight-year-old is going to have the wrath of mom all over him in, the, in, in his school environment. I don't know why it is. It's the sin in our lives. It's, a, it's the block that we have between us and, and true fellowship with the Father. We always want to react and take things into our own hands. What is the most effective way to deal with that? I mean, you may have to go to the school. You may have to have a talk or whatever. But what if you started praying every day for that person that was bullying your child? Has anybody ever done that? Anybody would admit that they've done that? Well, I can't imagine. That would be so difficult to do. But it's what Christians should be doing. We should be praying for those who persecute us. Those that cause us trouble in this world, we should be praying for them. We should be going to the Father and wanting him to change their hearts. Because look at this example of Saul. How much more tremendous was it that we changed that man's heart instead of just ending his persecution? I mean, it could have been the prayer. I'm sure there were people that were praying for Saul to be destroyed. I'm sure they wanted the Roman government to come and prison him and crucify him for persecuting the church. I'm sure that's what they wanted. With the, the power of one of the rulers, Constantine, being a Christian himself and sympathetic to Christianity, I'm sure all the Christians were saying, Constantine, you need to gather these people up that are, that are persecuting us, and you need to kill them. You need to crucify them. You need to get them out of our lives. I'm sure that prayer was going on every day in the early church world because of the persecution. But which would have been more effective? Killing Paul or killing Saul or allowing Saul to have Jesus work through his life and become Paul, the Apostle Paul, one of the most influential men in the New Testament. Think about that. Have you ever thought how much power our prayers have? I think that's one of the reasons we don't pray like this. We don't believe it's going to happen. We don't think that our prayers can change the world that we live in. Do you think we can pray ISIS away? How many think we can do that? I've got a few. You know what? We can. Scripture tells us to pray for our enemies. If we, as Christians, gather together and boldly pray, I believe God would interact. But we don't do that. We think, well, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of the coward's way out to pray about it and make sure these things happen. Let's, let's don't do that. Let's, let's take some action. And then, when, then we'll think about it. How many times have you heard, and this, this frustrates me to death, well, all we can do about it now is pray about it. Duh! That's supposed to be the first thing we do is pray about it. God tells us to pray about everything, every day, every minute of the day. 
So we have created this crazy culture that we live in in the United States. We don't understand true persecution of the church. We don't understand what's going on in these other worlds. Even though we've read examples of it in the scripture this morning, this is the exact same thing going on today, but we can't relate to it because it doesn't happen to us. How many of you feel that you're persecuted as a Christian today in the United States? We've got a few. We've got a few that feel they're persecuted. And I, I understand where you're coming from. There are things in our climate, in our environment, that aren't favorable to Christians today. I want you to listen to this. This, was, this is from Facebook. I always like to conclude a little social media that some of you may have seen this week. I like this. It says, American Christians are not under attack. We are not being persecuted. We wield so much power in this country that politicians pretend to be Christian just so we'll vote for them. No one is trying to take your Bible away from you. The gay people are not destroying our families. We don't need any help with that. Thank you. We do a fine job of that by ourselves. So stop saying we are persecuted. You sound stupid. That was a Facebook rant I read. You know what? We don't sound stupid. Here we have a set of families in the Middle East that were worshiping Jesus and in that in he rose from the grave last Sunday. And they went to a family fun park and were killed simply because they had been worshiping that, that morning. And we feel that we're being persecuted because Starbucks didn't put a verse on their coffee cup or they put snowflakes instead of a Christmas tree. I mean, are we not stupid? Does that not make us sound stupid? Or, or this is one, we are so persecuted here because we're not allowed to pray on the football field over the PA system before the game. Do you see that in Scripture? Does it, did Jesus go, you know, you know where the Olympics came from, don't you? Rome? Did you see Jesus saying, you know... Those Olympic things are good, but we really need to have a Christian prayer before you run a decathlon. I think that, yes, I think you should have one, one of, you know, maybe Paul should go. Maybe you should have Paul and he should lead a prayer before every decathlon. I think that's what should happen. We don't see that in Scripture. That was so foreign and so crazy to them. But do you know why we do this? We read in the Scripture that to be Christians, we are going to be persecuted. It tells us people won't like us. It tells us that to stand up for God, to stand for what he, what he represents will cost us. And so what happens to us is we start seeking persecution. We start trying to find ways we're persecuted. You know why? Because if I find some way I'm persecuted, that proves I'm a good Christian. That's what we're doing, folks, is we're trying to find ways that it looks like we're being persecuted just to prove we're good Christians. We want, we want the United States to look like a Christian nation, so we're trying to find ways that Christians are persecuted. I thought that was so amazing, and I'd never thought about this. We're not persecuted by our, by our government because they all want our vote. So they'll even pretend to be Christian during an election cycle, whether they are or not, just to get our vote. That's how influential we are in our country. Does that sound like somebody that's persecuted? If they're trying to cater to us to get our votes, does that sound like somebody that maybe they want the power we have? Have we ever thought about the power we have through prayer, through the things that we do? You know, it's absolutely crazy the way we think. So how do we fulfill ourselves as Christians? How do we become good Christians? What does it really look like to be persecuted in the United States? It's really kind of hard to tell. You know where I think you will most likely be persecuted? Anybody got an idea? If you stand up for Jesus, where will you be most likely to face opposition? Anybody got an answer? How about your friends? How about your friendship? What if you say, you know what? I don't agree with this. 
I think this is wrong. I know you do it, but I think if I'm going to follow Jesus, I can't be a part of that. What's that going to cost you with a friend? That cost you your friendship. You know, one of the things we do, many of you guys know, and some of you don't. I know we got guests today, so I'll go ahead and admit I'm I'm one of the the people here that's directly involved with with working with those that su- struggle with substance abuse and other problems in their lives through our, our chaos management class that we have on Wednesday nights. And it doesn't mean you have to be an addict or whatever to come to our class, but that is, some of the people have that. Some people have family members, and they come to learn how to help their family members. But, but in that, one of the things that I will tell you, that if you are in that world where you are abusing drugs, abusing alcohol, whatever, and you decide to clean your life up, the number one thing that is going to be tough for you is turning your back on your friends because they are not going to want to be a part of your life anymore. Because one thing, it reminds them that they're doing things that are, they're on a self-destructive path. They don't want to be around those people. Now, if you want to be self-destructive with me, I'm all in. Let's all go party, let's do, let's, let's destroy our lives, whatever you want to do. They don't want to be a part of that when you say, what do they tell you? Has anybody been through this? Has anybody ever separated from their friends, you know what their friends come back and tell you? Well, you've changed. Well, yeah. <laughs> the, most, the, the best quote I like is, yeah, I've changed. I grew up. <laughs> I learned that I can't live my life like that. I learned I was on a path of self-destruction. I learned that I had to make certain changes in my life to be the person that, that I feel like that Jesus Christ wants me to be. And I'm not going to stand here and tell you that your life is perfect. I think that's one of the things we so so misrepresent in Christ's teachings is that once we receive, you know, just like the early church there, they were seeing him, this roller coaster of emotions that he was, he was here and then he was crucified and then he was back and they're celebrating, it's all great. And then next thing you know, we're stoning the guy that's representing him over here named Stephen. There's so many ups and downs in our lives. And Jesus never says that our lives will be perfect and we'll be free from hardships and things. And I think that's what we so struggle for is, is on the one hand, we want to be persecuted to look like good Christians, but on the other hand, we want to have the freedom to worship and do as we please. And it makes it a very difficult thing to balance in our lives. And we sometimes go too far in one way or the other. You know, I'm not going to tell you this morning what it's going to look like in 20 years in the United States. Our, our next election could totally destroy the landscape of America or whatever. You know what? Who cares? Do you think it changes Jesus' plan for you this morning? Do you, th- do you think Jesus' plan is based on the politics of the United States? No. Jesus has got a plan for us. Where we, we're seeing here, you know what? Those people knew that they risked their lives to worship Jesus that day, but they did it anyway. They lost their lives. Now, I don't think they probably planned that they were going for a family outing and they were going to die that afternoon. But you know what? Even if it did cross their mind, it didn't stop them from worshiping Jesus, did it? So whatever happens in our country, whatever's going on, what we need to be praying about this morning is, number one, praying for our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are truly persecuted. And it's not just from the Taliban, and it's not just from ISIS. There are people that are horribly, horribly persecuted for worshiping Jesus all over the world the, one of the few places it doesn't happen is North America. I mean, my goodness, we're, we're one of the few places that it doesn't happen. So what I want you to be thinking about this morning is thinking how those people in the early church, what they were feeling. You know, and, and I think that's one of the other things that sometimes the persecuted church, when we talk about it in America, does anybody, this is for you guys, 
Wouldn't it be just a little more exciting if we were a bit persecuted? Wouldn't it be a little more exciting if there was just a little element of danger, just a little something out there that made you think, hey, I'm kind of being risky this morning. I'm going to go all out for Jesus. Wouldn't that make you feel better? It wouldn't me. You know, I like cars and motorcycles and fast things and all that, speed and all that. That's because there's an element of danger and excitement in it. That's what's missing from our church sometimes is that, that element of danger and excitement. You know, well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go. You know what? You could go anywhere in Chattanooga, Tennessee today and go stand on a street, street corner with your Bible and preach about Jesus. What do you think is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you? What's the worst thing? Tell me. Somebody tell you to shut up? Okay, what else? Do you think you might get an altercation that somebody might throw a punch at you? You might, if you really got in a heated debate with somebody, you might provoke somebody to punching you. What else? Do you think you're going to get arrested for anything other than disturbing the peace would be the, the most serious charge you could do? You can try and get persecuted, and we can't do it, guys. We can't do it in our country right now. We can't be persecuted. We're protected. That's the element of excitement sometimes, I think, that, that, that many of us, we, we secretly crave, is to be able to be out here and be, be bold for Jesus. Now, I'm telling you, those of you who have been through it and have, have done things that have changed your lives to the point that you've lost friends, that is a challenge. That is living on the edge. That is doing something, getting outside your comfort zone. And that's what I want to encourage you with this morning as, as we close, is to get outside your comfort zone, to start thinking about persecution in a different way. Number one, we should be praying every day for those that are persecuted. We've seen this morning what it truly looks like. I've tried to give you a glimpse out of Scripture of what went on in the early church and how it was life or death. And there are life or death situations throughout our world today. Let's pray for our enemies. Let's pray. Let's commit ourselves to pray for the leaders of ISIS and ISIL and the Taliban. What would happen if every church in America today, every church in the world, started praying for our enemies instead of praying for their destruction? What if we saw another Apostle Paul rise up out of that? Can you imagine what that would do? What would that do to the ISIS movement today if they went from bombing Christians to their leader, renouncing his religion and his persecution of Christians, and he started preaching the gospel of Jesus in the Middle East. Do you know what that would look like? Can you imagine? We have so lost focus of what, what the power of God is and what the Holy Spirit can do through us and the changes that he can make in people's lives. Isn't that something? We have, we have lost some of that excitement that I was talking about in the New Testament church, that God can change our world. He can start by changing my life, and as my life has changed, I can influence those around me to change their lives and to come to Christ and come to know him. Is that not fantastic? Is that not what we're here for this morning? I know some of us have needs, and, and you're here to, to make sure those needs are met. I understand that, guys. But also, we should be thinking outside of these few seats in this little auditorium here, and we should be thinking about our community, our world, and how we influence those around you. You will never know what your influence is outside of the church. I'm going to tell you a quick story about that as I close. I was talking to a guy, we went, you know, and, and matter of fact, this is a good time for an announcement. This will flow right in. 
I want to talk to some of you. We're, you know, we're doing a car event here on April 30th, and some of you have talked to me about it. We're going to do some quick stand-up meetings about that after church. We're not going to eat. We're not going to stay here for, but for a few minutes. We do this at work, and I like this. We're going to have a stand-up meeting right over here for you guys that are interested in and ladies that are interested in what we're doing about this. We need some help. We're going to need some volunteers. Meet me up front for a quick stand-up meeting. We'll talk a little bit about that, and we'll do that for the next couple of Sundays and get some little details ironed out that I need some help with. But I want to tell you about this. I did this years ago, and we did this as ministry. Now, we're doing it a little different here, but I was doing car shows, and I was doing that as an outreach to, to meet people that weren't in church. They would come to a car show. They wouldn't come to church. So we started this event. And I ran across a guy yesterday, and he was telling me. I was explaining to him we were going to do that, and I was at Journey Church was kind of going to pick up the mantle of doing that, and we hadn't had a facility to do it, and now we've got a beautiful facility to have a, a car made in. And so we're going to do that here. And I was telling him about that. And then he said, well, I want to tell you one thing. He said, I remember when you did that other deal and that people came and they, you know, they even had gospel music at it and Bible tracts and things were given out. He said, I want you to know that I know a man whose life was changed because of that. I never have heard this story. This guy, I didn't even know for sure if he was a Christian that I was talking to. And he's telling me, you never know what influence you have when you act like a Christian. He said, you never know. He said, those people, they don't, the whole circumstances around that, he said, people don't have any idea how it touched that man's life. He felt burdened because of the way he was living. And he said, I need to be a better example of my children and grandchildren. And he turned his life around because he saw how other Christians were acting. That's our power. That's the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. And that's the, the beauty of when the Holy Spirit works through us. It's not us having to do it. The Holy Spirit is doing things that we can't imagine. He is out here working in other people's lives, and we don't have any idea that he's even doing it. But he's out there working in our community, working with our coworkers, working with our family, working with our friends who may be addicts. He's doing all those things through us, and it's a power greater than anything we can imagine. And I just want to leave you with that this morning as we pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for... for the things you teach us through your, through your word, Lord. And I, I just pray that you'll, you'll continue to, to speak to, to us as a people, as journey here today. God, I just pray that you'll embolden us to, to be the gospel witness that we need to be, God, and to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of faith and the power of prayer that we can change the very existence of the world around us through those things, God. Pray this morning if there's one here that's not a follower of the way as we described it, Lord, that they will become a follower of you, Jesus. And remember last weekend we celebrated your victory over death and that you came and paid the penalty for our sins. And Lord, if there's one here that, that needs to follow you this morning, Lord, I just pray that they'll do that. Lord, and we just pray all these blessings in your name. Amen.